Hey everybody, welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for tuning in. However it is that you found it, whether it's the Revelations Radio Network, the Black Vault Radio Network, or Revere Radio Network, we are happy that you made it. Um, and you can also subscribe to the show on iTunes if you look up Nowhere to Run. You can go to my website, which is nowheretorunradio.com, and there there is a link to contact me if you have any questions, comments, or corrections. And you can also get a hold of me on Skype, which is an internet, telephone, and messaging system. My name on there is chris.white1984. You can message me, and if I don't answer you, nothing personal, I might have something going on, or might just be away from my computer or something like that. But I am going to try to be more available for conversations on Skype, if that can help in any way with uh, whatever your situation is. So, um, Okay, so I want to start off with corrections, something I used to do on old shows, but now we're going to try to bring them back, because I certainly need to uh, stay humble in this regard. What I want to correct is actually not from the previous show, but from, uh, maybe there's a correction from the previous show too, but I'll get into that later, but um, I want to correct something from the Sacred Name video. And this, there was a section of that video where I kind of, I knew even when I was doing it that it was sort of my like little extra jab in there. It wasn't really associated with it. It was just something I wanted to, I've been wanting to get in in lots of different ways was to describe the psychology of how, um, how when something happens, you know, trauma, psychological trauma happens, uh, it leaves you vulnerable for error. Anyway, I was describing that situation, but um, I did so in the context of the name Jehovah, which is a mispronunciation of the Tetragrammaton, and one that I think is provably so, that it's not a correct pronunciation. Um, well, I was trying to say that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists uh, don't uh, you know, have this sort of psychological trauma when they find out that Jehovah isn't the correct name of God. The way that I came to that conclusion was that, it first of all, it was sloppy research, but it, but but it was when I was doing the study of the vowel dots that the Masoretics or the Maser, on the Masoretic text that the Masoretes put on the name of God, they would put the vowel dots for like Adonai on Yahweh to, they wouldn't change the name of Yahweh or how it was written, but they would put the vowel dots for another word. And those vowel dots essentially is why we had the uh, pronunciation Jehovah because um, people were reading the vowel dots as if they were supposed to be on the Tetragrammaton. I hope that's not too confusing. I'm pretty sure it is for most people. It's not that important to what I'm saying eventually. Uh, but, so, what I was noticing was that it was the Jehovah's Witnesses that were saying, oh no, the vowel dots were inspired. They've been around since the oldest time, which is a really, really super illogical thing to say. And it was the only thing that the only reason anybody would say that is because Jehovah would absolutely have to be the correct pronunciation. So I assumed, that's the key word, that the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, you know, had a dogma about it being actually called Jehovah and that it was a correct pronunciation. That was where my first error was. The second error was when I just added Seventh-day Adventists to it because of a really extra sloppy research where I just looked up, I wonder what Ellen G. White called God, and I uh, looked it up, oh, she called God Jehovah. That'll just throw her in there too. And I did all this really quickly to just sort of find a way to put in something I wanted to put in anyway in that video, which was that, um, you know, a lot how this sort of happens, psychological trauma creates a breeding ground for uh, error. And I just, just 
it really didn't apply to that situation, but it's something I've been wanting to make another video on uh, altogether. So it was just that whole section of the video was, was wrong. And I started by taking off the thing about uh, the Seventh-day Adventists first, and then I took the thing, and then later on I just took that whole section out altogether. So I just want to say that I'm sorry. Uh, it was That section was uh, really bad in that, you know, I did such good research on the rest of it to 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 taint it with such terrible research, and I know there there is a lot of uh, people that have re-uploaded that video out there, and uh, I got one person to to put in the correct version, but that was before I took out the Jehovah's Witness part too. So, anyway, I am guilty as charged for sloppy research on that one, and I apologize. Okay, so moving on a little bit, and all this is going to be kind of tied in. Everything I've got today, basically falls into like a category of Catholicism or Seventh-day Adventists or uh, something like that. So let me just start talking. First of all, let me say that uh, the the research has been going really great with the uh, Catholicism. Um, I really started focusing mostly on... Um, you know the the supposed authority of the Catholic the Catholic Church or uh, apostolic succession. This idea that um, not only Peter was given some sort of special power, um, which I think that he was actually, but that's beside the point right now. But uh, that that power was passed that that power is interpreted correctly by the Catholic Church, and that that power that they interpret in the way that they do, is then passed down to subsequent popes, or rather bishops of Rome. So that's sort of where I've been focusing, because I think it's it's the linchpin of everything. I mean, if everything that they say about, you know, well, it's not in the Bible, but it's in tradition, it all, it all presupposes that this thing is correct. So I've been focusing on that, doing a ton of research and, and Bible study to the max. My uh, roommate Mike, he got this super expensive Bible software called Logos, and so I've been uh, been on that, really uh, checking it out, and been like, "Whoa, this is." So I've been, but I've also been on my on my handy dandy free e sword has also been helping a lot in that. And I might, I probably am going to talk about that in just a little bit and give you my sort of lowdown on what I think is going on because I'm not sure that I'm going to do this project anymore. And here's why: that uh, so somebody sent me something the other day about. Um, something Keith Thompson was doing, uh, sounded good or whatever, but I checked his website and I saw in his news section that he, uh, about the same time as I did, decided to go full force into the research of his new film about uh, Catholic doctrine. So, so Keith Truth Thompson here and I are both working on exactly the same thing and started researching it at the exact same time. And I'm thinking, okay, this is, I don't even know what that means. I mean, or my, and does that mean we should collaborate? Does that mean that I should do mine? He should do his. Uh, I don't want to like cancel each other out, and I don't want to, you know, like waste uh, time when you know I could be doing something else or, or whatever. Or maybe I'm not supposed to do it, or blah blah blah. So anyway, I I talked to him uh, yesterday for about an hour or so, and just sort of laid everything out on him that I've been researching and we sort of brainstormed about a few different things we didn't really come to a conclusion about what we should do um but i'm going to talk a little bit about what it all means to me at, in a minute uh what i do think that no matter what was good I, it was important i think that i just laid out some of the stuff that i've been finding because um i think it's really important i think that um 
this things that I found about this this key uh, passage in Matthew, I think if it, if it's done incorrectly or which is really easy to do because as I was reading the commentators on this, there's like of all the ancient commentators, there's like uh, you know ancient I guess the reforming the uh, the Reformation commentators as well as all the modern commentators, they basically have a lot of different opinions on it too. And so I think it's something is is important there. And so I was trying to get to the bottom of that. And so I got a chance to sort of spill it out on uh, on Keith there. And hopefully that will, um, you know, at least uh, kind of help in that most important issue. I think that he is, Keith is a better uh, filmmaker than I'll ever be. And I think that if it's going to be done, uh, he should be the one making the film, not me. And that I should... Uh, try to consult with him about some of the things that I'm finding. Maybe that means that I should be doing something more in an evangelistic flavor. So I was thinking, well, because I have all these uh, testimonies, uh, not just the testimonies I've procured, but the ones that I've now found through Richard Bennett, who I'm, again, going to interview this Thursday, I believe. Uh, And so... So he's got like a ton of interviews from ex-Catholics and uh, ex-Catholic priests and nuns and a lot of really good stuff that um, that I need, that I could just probably... The great thing about Richard Bennett is that he's got all this material out there and uh, it's really great, very well articulated stuff, but it's kind of just, in my opinion, too spread out and needs to sort of be turned into like one, you know really good evangelistic sort of tool and that should just like be promoted and put out there and cause controversy and all kinds of stuff. So I I'm thinking maybe that's what I should do. Then I was thinking, well, maybe I could do something where I just show all the pagan practices of the Catholic church to sort of focus it on that and say, you know, whatever it may be that, that some kind of practice, like, I don't know, uh, holy water or, the rosaries or something uh it has its origins in in you know pagan cultures and is not in the bible i think it would be important to say okay this one is not in the bible here is the catholic church admitting this one is not in the bible here is where it is found and then you and or maybe even show this is why they say in tradition and tradition you know go through that a little bit of what why they even say it, it should be done and then show what the you know pagan history of it is i think it would be a pretty powerful presentation but i was just looking up that and thinking uh you know this has basically already been done by people like uh you know uh, alexander hislop and the two babylons i haven't read the book but you know i've read enough excerpts and different things on it so and i don't agree with uh a lot of this stuff and i'll talk a a little bit about that in a minute so I guess I'm trying to say I want to sort of just lay this out on you all because I really don't know what I should be doing uh, right now because I feel like there's so many potential projects and I don't know which direction to go. I do want to talk a little bit about them. Um, first, let me talk a little bit about what I've been finding with uh, with my studies of Matthew 16. So I'm just going to just start ranting a little bit about it. I'm just going to go through this passage off the top of my head without any of my notes present because there's just too many it's almost overwhelming to even look at them but i'll just explain it as i understand it uh based on those notes and based on the research so 
Matthew 16, starting at verse 17. Um, Well, let's go ahead and start all the way at uh, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And that is a really good question that we should answer as well. But uh, verse 16 says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Okay, well, as many of you might know, that is the passage that uh, the Roman Catholic Church bases their uh, earthly authority and uh, spiritual authority on. They claim that um, they are the successors to Peter, that is, the Pope is the successor to Peter, and so therefore has these keys and this power to bind on earth and to bind uh, uh, in heaven. So, or to bind and loose, binding loosing power, I guess you could say, but it really comes down to how that they interpret that idea of the keys and the binding and loosing. You can actually look at the Roman Catholic um, logo, I guess you could say, and it has the keys there, the two keys crossing each other uh, over the Pope hat. And that is, to say a central doctrine would be a massive understatement. I mean, most Catholic, you know, magazines are called The Rock or, you know, The Keys or it's all it's all based around this. So it's to say it's central is um very very uh true. So one of the things that um I noticed and, and I actually disagree a little bit. I should preface this with the inter- guy I'm going to be interviewing. I agree with him on so much stuff, but there's some very subtle things that I disagree with him about this passage, and it's not uncommon to have slight disagreements about this as I was reading through the different commentators, and they mostly have about three different views. That is, that um, when it says um, that thou, and I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Most Protestant commentators will, and apologists will say that uh, this rock, upon this rock, it was one of three things. One, that this rock was Jesus pointing to himself. Upon, you are Peter, but, and I'm sort of paraphrasing this explanation, you are Peter, but upon this rock, but instead he says, and upon this rock, uh, as if Jesus was pointing to himself and saying, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there are many, many different verses which show that uh, Christ is, uh, you know, the foundation of the church, etc., and, and it points even Peter to talking about Christ being the foundation and stone and the, the chief cornerstone and all these kinds of ideas. So that's what they use for that one. Another uh, thing that people say is that upon this rock is talking about Peter's confession. That is, Peter just got done being the first guy to say, "Hey, you, you are the Son of God. You are, uh, you know, you're the Christ." 
and so he and so Jesus is saying that hey you upon that rock upon that rock of your confession is what I will build my church and the other view and of course uh that makes some pretty good sense there too i mean it could be that it was confession i mean uh it would essentially make sense that that would be what he's talking about and that is actually i think the the interpretation that i had until doing this study the third interpretation that protestants usually have is that it is his faith that that is the rock that thou art peter and upon this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it so those are the three that uh you know most people will sort of choose one or the other and i think mr bennett chooses um i don't know we'll have to wait to the interview to see which one i'm and i'm not going to argue with him because i don't think it's fruitful uh but and i don't think i would argue with him anyway i think that uh uh it's their valid interpretations, and you have to understand, I, I don't have my notes here, but there are really good reasons that the commentators say one of those three things. There's really good biblical stuff to say it was his faith, or that it was a confession, or it was uh, Jesus was the rock. So uh, I don't have a problem with anybody saying any one of those. My my point is, though, I don't think it's any of them. I think I think that what's happening here is that it's a straw man that the Catholic apologists uh, are correct on that he is in fact talking about Peter being the rock and it makes the most sense in the reading of the uh, the verse now let me get this straight just because Peter is the rock that he's going to build uh, his church on uh, and I'll explain that a little bit more in detail doesn't mean that um, that the next part of that the keys of the kingdom of heaven which he gives or the binding and loosing stuff is means what the catholic church says it means or that it go that it's passed down from peter or the apostles that's the main part of this um just because of what i'm about to say seems like it's a uh, validating the catholic interpretation uh doesn't doesn't at all it's just i think that it's i think it's the most natural reading of the text and here's why First, it says in verse 17, And Jesus answered and said to them, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Now, Barjona means son of Jonah. Uh, so, in the verse before, Jesus calls him Simon Barjona. Now, he's he's named, uh, Peter means uh, rock. The word Peter means rock. And uh, that's why sometimes in other places, uh, uh, Peter is called Cephas, or because in the Aramaic, it's the word for rock, Caiaphas. So that's why Peter seems to have different names. And he named Peter like right when he first met him. Like, hey, I'm going to name you. I'm going to name you Peter. I don't care if your name's Simon, son of Jonah. I'm going to call you uh, Rock. And so that was kind of, you know, what Peter was called because that's what Christ named him. So here is where Christ is actually, you know, meaning obviously by verse 17 to be calling him Peter in the in verse 18 because he calls him Simon Bar Jonah um, in the previous verse. So. And that's because he's using his name Rock as a play on words in the next verse. It says, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now there is a huge discussion in apologetics, and uh, one of these is uh, the one that uh, Mr. Bennett uh, does hold, and I think it's an interesting and very valid point, which is that the Greek words here are used uh, differently. He says, Thou art Peter, which is Petra, and upon this rock, which is Petros. Now, the difference that many people will show is that Petra is a small rock, and uh, that 
that is Peter is a stone. Uh, it, it's a rock. But whereas the word for rock, you are Peter, small rock. But upon this Petros, which is an extremely large sort of bedrock that things would be carved out of. It's a very huge thing that cannot be moved. That's what the name Petros means. And so uh, that's what people like uh, Mr. Bennett would say, that uh, this is talk- that Jesus must have been essentially gesturing to himself. Now, there's actually pretty good support for something like that because uh, there are places in the Bible where uh, this is assumed that that's what Jesus was doing. For example, uh, tear this temple down, and in three days I will rebuild it. That's sort of implied that he's sort of gesturing to himself about that. Uh, so that's, that's kind of, there's really good, in, uh, it's a really good apologetic argument. But after researching that, I don't think, and, and one, one of the points that Mr. Bennett also makes is that the Catholic apologists will say that, uh, this was originally in Aramaic and the Aramaic words for, uh, Petra and Petros are the same. So they would say that, uh, thou art rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, that is uh, not easy for me to believe because, number one, as Mr. Bennett points out, there is no available text in Aramaic. It's just a guess to say that we know what it would say. Um, but I think it is important that Matthew chose to use two Greek words here uh, instead. That is to say, thou art, he wrote, thou art Petra, and upon this Petro. So if he was working from ancient uh, Aramaic, Aramaic texts, he would notice whatever subtlety there to uh, put the two different words in Greek. The argument there on the Catholic side is that there is uh, gender issues there is the reason why Petra and Petros were rendered the way that they were, that they don't necessarily have to be different um things the different you know different sizes of rock they both could be the same rock and that uh because peter was a name of a male uh it was a uh uh, yes it was meaning rock but it was used as a name that petra and petros that's where you have the differentiation there not necessarily because they were different things but because one was um you know used for a name and one wasn't and i think that that's pretty solid um actually and I, I come to that conclusion after reading some pretty brilliant commentators about it, Protestant commentators like um, uh, Lightfoot, I think, is a really great example, but there's others out there. I'm pretty sure Lightfoot was on this. I'll have to check my notes. But there were some other ones that really made me think about that. So what I came to the conclusion was on this is that he really is using a play on words here. He is saying, and that's he says, Blessed art thou Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father in heaven. And I say unto thee, to thee, uh, that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what I see happening there is essentially he, him saying, yeah, you are the first guy, Peter. You're the first guy that has uh, got it right, confessed and believed here. And you're kind of like the first block in... Uh, the first brick in the house. You know, I'm going to build on you a whole lot of other bricks. And that's what Peter himself describes uh, later on in, um, let's see if I can find the verse. Yeah, okay, here's one in First Peter, verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, uh, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious are ye also 
as lively stones are built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Christ. So this spiritual house, we are all, he says, Peter is saying that we are all lively stones. And that is, uh, he actually says here uh, that, um, you know, that, that Christ is the, is the cornerstone as we, uh, as we progress through this. But uh, here he says, Where, wherefore also it's contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief uh, cornerstone, elect, precious, and that he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So I think that uh, Peter was an important apostle. Now, one of the things that the, the Catholic apologists do, they have these huge lists of why Peter was in, an important apostle. I mean, they say things like, you know, in every description of the uh, apostles, when they're all named in order, Peter's always named first, and Judas is always named last, and you know, they go through all these sorts of things and they do, they do make some really good points. I mean, Peter was uh, a really special, uh, apostle. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he was the guy that spoke for him. He was the guy, you know, at Pentecost, he was the guy that, uh, you know, opened up the doors to the Gentiles and to the Jews and to the, uh, and to the, um, Samaritans. There, there is not really, it's not really good to argue that. I don't think, I mean, I think that in the same way that, uh, you know, John was also special in another way. Peter was certainly a special apostle and in a lot of ways sort of the leader of the apostles. So I, I don't think that that should be argued necessarily. Um, I think that the important part here is not to argue that, uh, as it says in this verse, and, and I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I don't think it's fruitful to argue that he wasn't talking to Peter here. Because even if you say, hey, Peter, you know, upon you, I'm going to build my church. I mean, why, why not? He's the first stone in the church. Why not? I mean, that's what you would do if you laid the first stone. Uh, you're the first one, and we're going to build a, a spiritual house, as Peter later said, with lots of believers on this, what you've you know done, on you, on what, you know, your act of faith. Now, of course, this, uh, this isn't something that can be passed down. It's not repeat, a repeatable function. But uh, you are the first, and that's I think that we're what we're going to see here in the next part of this, where it says, "And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Now this is big. We need to discuss this because uh, the Catholic interpretation of this is that the keys and, of the kingdom of heaven and this loosing and binding power mean that uh, you know they can they their organization has the power to determine if somebody's sins are forgiven or not and their organization has the power to uh, to say you're in or you're out of the church or you know they have the power to uh, declare what doctrine is and isn't and whatever they say goes so this is kind of the the problem here now this that of course rests on the the macro problem there of was this if this was given to Peter, was it ever passed down? But listen, for for now, just deal with the text itself, where it says, And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, a lot of apologists will say, it's not the keys of the kingdom of the church, it's the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that's an important uh, distinction. Uh, and you can look at that in Greek and see that it's uh, indeed talking about, uh, not not about the church or anything like that, but... I think that what's being discussed here is exact is something that was given to Peter distinctly, 
Now, I think that later on we see that the power of binding and loosing later on in Matthew is given to the other apostles in Matthew 18, 18 I think. Uh, he, he gives it to the other apostles. So if even if uh, this letter, the first part, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, however, I don't have any problem with believing that they were actually given to Peter. And I think it may be fruitful to argue against it. But that brings the question up, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? I mean, what does that even mean? Now, in the context here, he's saying he's about to build on him a bunch of other believers. You know, a lot of other blocks are going to be put on top of him, you know. So I think in the context, the most natural reading there is that he is the keys to the kingdom of heaven are exactly what Peter did. Peter, if keys lock things and unlock things, then Peter uh, has keys, plural, not key to the kingdom of heaven, but keys, plural, to the kingdom of heaven. And that I think is important too. It's a plurality of keys, not just a key to the kingdom of heaven. So what did Peter do? Peter opened up the door at Pentecost. Peter said, to the surrounding Jews and preached the sermon uh, as they, he was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And many, 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 many people came to believe that day based on Peter's inspired sermon. Peter was the first guy to ever make any conversions. Um, and so that was, that was part, one of Peter's keys. But I think the other key was Peter's key to opening the door to the Gentiles, which he did at the house of Cornelius. That was a big deal, very inspired by God thing. I mean, Peter wasn't going to do that on his own, but for, uh, as it says here, uh, uh, you know, it says, Jesus makes a big deal and says, hey, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, to you about this. You know, you did a good job, but flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. Well, flesh and blood didn't reveal it to Peter at Pentecost. I mean, that was a total, like, the Spirit came upon him and he just started, you know, preaching. Secondly, uh, the Spirit revealed it to him that uh, the Gentiles should be preached to. I mean, he had this vision of the sheet and he was resistant to it. He was like, hey, uh, and, you know, it says, you know, kill Peter and eat. And he's like, uh, I'm not going to, I've never eaten anything unclean. And I'm not going to start right now, you know, vision from God. And, uh. And the vision from God was like, hey, no, yeah, you are. Uh, guess what? The Gentiles are going to be involved in this, too. And he's like, okay. And, you know, before he could wrap his brain around it, there was a knock at the door saying, hey, uh, yeah, we're from the house of Cornelius. Uh, some, like, angel appeared to, you know, him and told us to come get you and tell you to be here. So you're supposed to, like, come preach the gospel to us or something. And so, you know, he goes and preaches the house of Cornelius despite his, you know, I mean, he wasn't like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go do today, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He like, you know, was not revealed by flesh and blood that he should do that. So if you look at the keys in that context, which there's no reason to look at it in anything else, um, I take that back. There's a p potential thing that's going on there. And I think that's that's probably the most likely part. And I do agree with Mr. Bennett uh, certainly on that. And I thank him for... Uh, for bringing that to my attention. And subsequently, I have seen many uh, commentators that bring forth really great uh, uh, other proof texts, as I'm not uh, doing at the moment for this kind of thing. But um, another possibility, though, is that it could the keys to the kingdom of heaven could uh, have a lot to do with the binding and loosing. And the reason I would say that is because I think it would make sense in context, because he says... Imagine keys, imagine binding being lock, 
and unbinding or, or and and loosed being unlocked, then I think that you could read the passage like this. And I will give unto you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lock on earth shall be locked in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt unlock on earth shall be unlocked in heaven. Now, this term, binding and loosing, uh, is was an extremely well-known and understood phrase in Judaism. Uh, Lightfoot, again, brings out some really good commentary on this. And by the way, I should mention, I, as I was researching this, as I paused the show, Lightfoot didn't wasn't agreeing with the interpretation that about the Petra and Petros thing, uh, as far as I understand it. So he that's where I started digging into it and found uh, one version of it there. But I don't think he would agree with uh, that point. Um, but as far as I know, he didn't understand the whole gender uh, issue there with the name thing. But regardless, irregardless, I just wanted to mention that. He does bring out a huge list of examples from ancient Jewish texts about the idea of binding and loosing. And subsequently, there's a ton of other places where you can uh, see that this was a very well-known expression and it had to do with kind of um used with doctrine usually maybe with uh priests and with later on with commentators and things like that like Maimonides or or, or somebody would bind that or allow it or disallow it kind of thing by their teaching and it would bind it and so essentially a natural understanding of that is whatever you would bind on earth would be bound in heaven and giving the idea of this, this giving the apostles, because this one is without a doubt given to all the apostles, not just to Peter. The keys, you know, that could be just to Peter. Uh, and if these are the same things, then the keys are given to the apostles. If you if you look at Matthew 18 and 18, it says, well, they definitely gave the binding of earth uh, and heaven and all this stuff to the apostles. If they're the same thing as the keys, then the keys were also given to the apostles. But if they are distinct, then the keys were just given to Peter, and Peter uh, fulfilled them with the opening of the doors to the Gentiles and the Jews and the Samaritans. But nevertheless, that's really sort of inconsequential, I suppose. The main thing here is that... Um, the binding and loosing, you have to understand this. This is the, the heart of the apologetics argument to the Catholics, I think, is that this is true. This is what the apostles did. Um, the apostles were trained for three years with the Lord. Uh, some would say, well, Paul wasn't trained for three years with the Lord. I would say, well... He mentions that he goes to Mount Sinai in Arabia, where I think Jabal al-Laz, or the Mountain of Moses, actually is, surrounded by barbed wire, long story. But but he says he goes to Arabia for three years, and he subsequently talks about this time that he spent with the Lord, learning you know from him directly. I think it's it's every bit of indication that he did... In fact, spend three years with the Lord like the other apostles. Uh, whether the time is frame is significant, I don't know. But I would say that the main thing is is that the apostles, I feel like, spent that time with the Lord, you know, sleeping on rocks and stuff like that. And, you know, they were doing that learning. Everything, every breakfast was learning more about him and some of the things that he would say. It was preparing them for something that they would do. Now, they weren't there just to be like, uh, characters in a story, they had a very specific job that they were going to do. Later on, they were going to write the Bible. They were going to, uh, essentially, by writing the Bible, uh, by they were going to set forth this doctrine of everything. And Jesus is telling them in this thing, and this this is exactly what you would expect him to do, 
if he was going to say, you guys are my guys. You guys are like, I'm going to give you specific functions and specific power to do these functions. Uh, this is exactly the kind of passages you would expect. Is, and we see them in other places where he gives these apostles a specific type of authority over doctrine and things like that because they're absolutely going to need it. Um, another side note. And this is just a theory, and please, uh, this is just, uh, you know, I, I, I want to say, a lot of people will say uh, that, you know, apost uh, apostolic succession was validated when Peter uh, casted lots and chose Matthias as the other apostle. Basically, Peter, um, before Pentecost, before any of this going on, he, in my opinion, regular old Peter was like, hey, there's prophecies that there's supposed to be 12 of us. And now there's only 11 of us. We better cast some lots and find another one so that we can help God out. That's my interpretation of what Peter, Peter did. He may have been inspired by God to it. The text does not explain that he was inspired by God. It's just telling a story of what Peter did. We never hear any more about Matthias. We never know anything about him. But I would, I would suggest to you that, that what Peter was saying was right. That there was prophecy. There was prophecy about 12. Peter had a good point. Peter was thinking he needed to do it himself, help God out. But I think that God had already chosen a twelfth. And that's what Paul was on the road to Damascus. Uh, that's my personal opinion, because he takes then Paul and does everything that Peter says, these qualifications that he has to have, that he has to have been with us from the beginning, has to have been with us from John the Baptist all the way to the crucifixion, which I would submit that Paul falls into those categories too, although he was not on board with uh, with the Lord at those times. He was present at probably one of the ones sent to John the Baptist. Maybe that's a conjecture. He certainly was around and heard about John the Baptist. And he, uh, as being a, a, a very prominent Jew at the time, and also would have heard all about Jesus and the, all about the resurrection and been very involved in understanding about that, even if only in passive. But I would assume that it was probably a little bit more than passive, as we see how zealous he was in this particular area. Uh, but nevertheless, that's a side note. My, my point here is that the apostles had specific functions, and this binding and loosing uh, was one of them. Let me read quickly in Matthew 18, just so you know this was given to the other apostles. Okay, in Matthew 18, verse 18, it says, and he's speaking to the entire uh, the set of apostles here. And he says, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, I would say this is exactly what the function of the apostles were that they um, wrote the uh, Gospels, that they taught uh, the Gospels. Now, this brings up the question of sola scriptura, and the most of the arguments that I've heard about sola scriptura go like this. They bring up every, you know, a huge list of copy and pasting that essentially say the same thing. There was oral tradition by the apostles. It wasn't all just written down. But, but I would encourage you to recognize that that's not the point, even a little bit, to, to copy and paste that kind of argument. Well, there was oral tradition in the Old Testament, or there was oral tradition by the apostles, and here's your proof, uh, is not what's being discussed here. Of course there was oral tradition. It plainly states until the time of the Gospels were written, it was oral tradition, and there was also oral tradition after that because the apostles were still around and they were still teaching about things, etc. But it is clear that the apostles believed that there are teachings, you know, this is what the Catholic Church would believe, and so I'm saying it this way, that it is their, the apostles' teachings that 
they are following. They're, they're following the teachings of the apostles, and they believe that the teachings of the apostles weren't all written down, and that they're different than what was written in the Bible, and many times contradictory to what was written in the Bible, but that's beside the point. What I'm trying to say here is that the apostles believed that their teachings were preserved best by writing them down. That is the same thing. The, the reason why it's important for them and for us to write down their teachings is because they knew very well that uh, people would likely, if it was just an oral tradition, claim that they taught things that they didn't do. Now, we live in a really corrupt world where, believe it or not, some people don't mind lying. And so the issue is, is that if they didn't write it down, then people could say that they taught anything in the world that they wanted them to, to fulfill whatever earthly uh, ambitions they might have, let's say political ambitions. And so really the only the answer to the whole infallibility argument that the Catholics have is the answer to why, uh, is the answer to that problem. They say, well, yes, I suppose it is true that somebody could easily lie about what the apostles taught and, and we would have no reason to believe them because there is no uh, text proof to say that they're wrong. So they must have been infallible. That's it. They can't lie. That's, that's, that's the answer to that problem. That is what it's all based on. The infallibility is a necessary component to the idea that uh, we want to believe um, some stuff that people you know, just say that the apostles taught. But it is clear from the word uh, that the apostles would say things like, we're writing this down so that you may know with certainty. And, you know, they point out in other places in John 21 where it seems to be suggesting the same thing, where it's talking about the power to, uh, gives the apostles the power to forgive sins. Whatever sins you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven, whatever sin, and, and these kinds of things, which is, you know, where they get the idea that, you know, priests should be able to forgive sins. And to this, I would say that this is, again, Something he gave to the apostles, not to everybody, certainly not to presbyters or, you know, bishops or anything like this, or elders or all this, any of that stuff. This was something to the apostles. What it means, as far as that, I don't think is, is the same thing as the binding and loosing, necessarily. Um, I think that maybe what we're seeing there is what we see with Peter and Ananias and Sapphira, when they sinned in the early church, and Peter essentially says... You guys are out. It seems that Peter knew what he was doing. If you read the account, especially of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, when she came back, it seems that he knew that she was about to drop dead, and both of them dropped dead after he called them out on their sins. It it seems like Peter knew that they were that what he was that they they were about to drop dead, which is you could say, well, it was just he just knew it prophetically that they were going to be just have a heart attack and die because they get caught in their sin. But I think that what we're seeing there is sort of the same thing that it's possible, uh, the kind of things that that uh, Paul would talk about as well as I delivered such a one unto Satan so that they might learn to, you know, when he would always talk about Hymenus and this other person that he would always talk about, um, that he would say, deliver such a one unto Satan. But it's not the same thing as dying, because when Paul would talk about it, he would it would essentially be that they would still be alive, that they would learn their lesson because of him delivering them unto Satan. I, I, if you read commentators, they don't know what they're, what they're talking about. Most commentators don't really even know what to deal with when Peter, when, when Ananias and Sapphira at separate times drop dead in front of in front of Peter. Most people don't know 
what's going on there in the comment in the commentators and i would suggest not a lot of people deal with it but that's what i think is possibly what's going to happen it's that's sort of undeveloped as a theory uh, but i think it's very possible what's at play there the main thing is here is that the apostles had uh specific functions and powers that's what they were supposed to do here. That was one of the reasons they, and they, they should have been, and nobody can be an apostle today unless you've spent um, some time directly with Jesus for about three years or so, and you've been trained for this. You know, I think that you, that's sort of a requirement, time with Jesus. Even the times that it mentions other apostles like Barnabas. Barnabas is mentioned as apostle and kind of throws that off a little bit, but Barnabas was probably the earliest, it's widely accepted that he was the earliest convert to Christianity probably would have been even around in maybe one of the 70. I'm not quite sure, but he definitely was right there from the beginning. So the whole thing about capital A apostles requires that you need to have some face time with Christ is the main thing. And without that, there's no biblical support that anybody else is an apostle, let alone that you can uh, that you can give your apostleship to somebody else. There's no biblical support for apostolic succession in that way. Um, so really the, this comes down to, there is not a lot of reason to argue that the, the apostles didn't have power or that Peter was even, uh, you know, really highly regarded. I'm not going to say chief among the apostles or leader of the apostles, but aside from maybe naming him that he definitely seemed to have that function. So I don't see that there's any reason to argue those points necessarily. The there, sure, there are some fine details of that that are absolute blasphemy that the, that the, that the, uh, church teaches where the core issue is what is the nature of those keys in heaven and do those and 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 binding and loosing and do they apply to uh the church today now uh the catholic church will even admit in in their publications that the church i was reading this the other day at catholic.com and i was just like almost laughing about it because they were describing what the church is like and what bishops and elders and you know the how it worked and in biblical times and after biblical times and um, it was funny because they were describing the Protestant church or, you know, maybe not. They were describing how churches function that I understand them, you know, that, that you have a bunch of elders that are sometimes, uh, you know, they that a, a pastor was somebody that, you know, would take care of the flock that would study the word and, you know, would teach the word and he would help people out. And there could be two or three per, you know, congregation or whatever. It wasn't a really big deal. And, and, you know, everybody baptized, you know, that if a believer could baptize somebody else and all these sort of things are sort of describing, you know, what I would say is the normal biblical model of the church. And they're saying, yes, okay, this is exactly what it looked like up until a point which is post-biblical when they say the writings of Ignatius. So when they, it's funny that they're sitting there admitting that, oh yes, the Catholic Church, because uh, a lot of Catholics believe, you know, in their head that there was this unbroken chain of like practicing Catholicism going on, when to see it in black and white that the Catholic Church basically is saying, well, we know that in the Bible, church was like Protestants think it is. And we know that for a time it was exactly like that. But then Ignatius comes along, and we all know that uh, it started to be just a little bit more Catholic. Now, even Ignatius isn't, you know, you don't get anything near like what we would see in the Catholic Church. But they, he starts to say things like uh, to be, to that a, a bishop needs to be, or, you know, needs to be there at the church when you're doing, you know, services and, and respect the bishop to these, you know, seemingly unbiblical levels. 
uh, and sorts of things like that that he's saying. So that they're they're pointing to Ignatius and saying, "There you go. That's when the early church, you know." And he's a pretty early guy. I mean, he's like uh, not very much long after uh, uh, you know the times of the Bible. So, so the interesting thing about Ignatius, though, as anybody would t- tell you, Catholics or, or Protestants, is that everybody knows that like eight of these sixteen letters are absolute forgeries, and most people believe that there are uh, forgeries and interpolations within the quote-unquote, uh, y- you know, uh, good letters that that we all know that there's that eight of them are forged and that they were pseudographical, that is, that they were claimed to be written by Ignatius but not written by Ignatius. And so you have essentially the Catholic.com saying, uh, which represents the, the Catholic Church in many different ways. They always say so at the bottom of every page and or have like each sort of apologetic argument sort of deemed uh, by the Catholic Church kind of thing. But um, they're saying that Ignatius is sort of the, the, yes, it was Protestant until Ignatius. And then Ignatius really doesn't even agree with them either. But even his writings are everyone knows to be suspect. So if I was a Catholic, I would say, you guys told me that this was always like a Catholic church. And here you're saying that it was a Protestant church and that I'm supposed, and that I'm supposed to rest everything. And my, the reason that I'm worshiping or, you know, I don't know. It's not worshiping Mary. The reason I'm asking Mary to pray for me and asking saints to pray for me. And the reason that I'm doing this rosary and the reason that I'm doing, um, all these, uh, unbiblical works. You guys said that I was supposed to hold the the traditions of the Catholic Church with equal authority as the Bible. That's exactly what they say that they should be held with equal reverences in the 1994 Catechism. And so, so you guys said that, and I'm basing that on 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 this. You know, something that everybody knows is forged, and I'm supposed to put all my faith in the fact that this wasn't uh, is exactly what Ignatius said. You know, I, I don't know if that's something that I want to put my my, my hopes and dreams on because, and my, especially not my salvation on, because I do see the problems with the Catholic Church. I do see, you know, that this stuff isn't in the Bible and that, but I, I'm assured that it's okay because, you know, tr- people have been doing it for a long time. And so, y- you know, I think that uh, that's, that's where it really a uh, very important point. And I'm going to end it there because, uh, you know, I've done a lot of research on some other things or whatever, and I don't know. Um, don't know what exactly to do with this uh, research right now. I'm kind of in a limbo point. So if you guys could help me out uh, a little bit and just pray for guidance as far as what what project I should be doing and you know which direction I should take this. Uh, oh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the last ten minutes of this episode. I'm going to play a ten minute or rather eleven minute video that I just made, which is an edit of David Guzik's uh, sermon. He did about an hour-long sermon that I've played on a different podcast called um, The First Word of the Gospel, and I found a way to edit it down to 10 minutes, and I made a video out of out of it, and I am really proud of it. I think it does a really good job of presenting a particular case about repentance. So I'm going to play this video and be out. So thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye. Failure to recognize what I'm going to talk about tonight results in a massive amount of Christians who are born into the kingdom, so to speak, with birth defects. You see, the problem is that many people who go by the name Christian and attend church regularly, they didn't understand or don't understand what we might call the first word of the gospel. Now, what is the first word of the gospel? 
Somebody might say the first word of the gospel is only believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him would not. So it's believe, only believe. Other people might say that, that the first word of the gospel is love. I mean, it all comes back to love, right? God is love. Somebody might say that the first word of the gospel is hope. I'm going to suggest to you tonight that there is a first word of the gospel. It was the first word in the mouth of John the Baptist. It was the first word in the public ministry of Jesus. It was the first word in the mouth of the twelve disciples as they preached. It was the first word in Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. It was the first word uh, in the uh, first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon. And it was the first word in the mouth of the Apostle Paul throughout his ministry. Well, what is it? Let's find out. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the first word in the mouth of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that was John the Baptist. He was a severe fellow, wasn't he? Surely Jesus, this great man of love and compassion, had a different word in his ministry. We'll look at Matthew chapter 4. Verse 17. And let's see if Jesus had a different message in his ministry. Matthew 4:17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, you know, surely that was just Jesus and, and something special for him. Not in the, in the responsibility of, of, of us who are followers of Jesus. We'll take a look at Mark chapter 6, verse 12, and see what the first word in the mouth of the twelve disciples was. This is when Jesus sent them out to do ministry on their own. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. We read, So they went out and preached that people should repent. That was their message. Well, you know, surely it's different after the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? I mean, it must be different then because it just maybe that was just all before the work on the cross. Well, what was the first word in Jesus's final instructions to his disciples? Go to Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, beginning at verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What were they supposed to preach? Repentance and the remission of sins. Well, maybe it was different after the day of Pentecost. I mean, when the Holy Spirit came, maybe there was just a freedom and a blessing and an outpouring of the Spirit that made this talk about repentance somewhat unnecessary. No. Take a look at what the first word of exhortation was in the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This isn't the first word of instruction that Peter gives in the sermon. This is towards the end of the sermon. But this is the first thing that he tells them to do. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says, Then Peter said to them, Repent 
and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting? That's what Jesus told them to do in Luke chapter 24, right? Preach repentance and the remission of sins. And what's Peter doing in Acts chapter 2? He's saying repent and receive the remission of sins. Well, maybe that was a one-time thing on the day of Pentecost. No, look at the next sermon that's preached in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. This is Peter's exhortation to them in that sermon. He says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, what about the Apostle Paul? Paul was the Apostle of Grace. Surely we wouldn't find the same message among Paul. Well, maybe we would. Paul describes his ministry after his conversion in Acts chapter 26. He's speaking to King Agrippa. So turn to Acts chapter 26, verse 19. And listen to Paul's description of his ministry immediately following his conversion. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. Okay, this is the message that he preached. What did he preach? Look at it there in the middle of verse 20. That they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Isn't that remarkable? This is Paul's message. This is what he went about preaching. I don't think you can say there is any doubt that repent is the first word of the gospel, and there's no doubt about the importance of repentance. But here's a place where we come to much confusion. What does repentance mean? In the mind of many people, repentance means to feel sorry. The, the ancient Greek word translated repent is the ancient Greek word metanoia. Now, it has two words. It's a, it's a word made up of two parts. It's a word made up of two words. Meta means to change metamorphosis you know meta means to change meta noia noia means mind or thinking repentance means to change your thinking it has the idea of a changing of the mind a turning or a revolution of thought and it may begin in the mind but it also affects the will and the emotions to repent means to turn around. You change where you're going. You're facing this way. You're facing south. If you repent, you change. You turn around and face north. That's what repentance is. It's a change. Now, friends, this shows, and I think that this is one of the most common misconceptions and one of the greatest reasons for what we might call birth defects among Christians today is they think that Christianity is the act of adding Jesus to your life. And you pretty much live the same life you were living before. It's just Jesus makes it better. You know, Jesus helps you be more successful in the life that you were already living. No, in biblical thinking, Jesus isn't just added to your life. One's life is changed because of Jesus. Scripturally speaking, is it proper to say that repentance is something that God does in us 
or is it something that we do for God? Do you understand the distinction here? Is repentance something that God does in us, or is it something that we do for God? And the answer is yes. The answer is both. There is no doubt that repentance begins with God and that it's a gift. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us that God leads us to repentance. At the same time, because of all the appeals to repent. In other words, when John the Baptist said, repent. When Jesus said, repent. When Paul said, repent, when Peter said, repent, the mere fact that they said it and appealed to the will of specific individuals to repent proves that there's something for us to do in repentance. God is not going to make a person repent against their will. He may move upon them so that they want to repent, but they will still have to exercise that wanting to repent and say, I repent. So it is a work of God in us, but it is a work that must be responded to. Now, we don't repent to earn salvation. That's not the idea. Your repentance does not earn salvation. Your repentance is not an act of cleaning yourself up before you can come to Jesus. That's not repentance. Repentance is coming to Jesus and saying, I want you to turn me in the right direction, and I want to go that way. I want to forsake my sin. I want to leave it behind. I know this is what you want for me, Jesus. I want it too. And so I renounce my sin. I hate my sin. I loathe it. I don't want it anymore. I want it far from me. The bottom line is this, friends. And these are strong words. But I believe it's absolutely certain scripturally. There is no salvation. There is no conversion. There is no justification. There is no forgiveness apart from repentance.